All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. Um, you should have your church information class booklet that I just gave you. Um, and we're going to be just going through that booklet. So if you want to prepare for next week, just look at the next lesson. Um, today we're going to look at the, the first section that says the covenant of communicant membership. And then also, number one, what we confess about the Bible. Uh, that first section is just an overview of what the covenant of communicant membership is. And then we will get into the actual material. Uh, this class is going to be a little different than what our normal Sabbath school class is like. It's going to be a lot less uh, interactive, a lot less dialogue throughout. Um, my plan is to teach through the material that's, that's for the week and at the end take questions and comments. That way I make sure to get through all of the material that we need to get through. Um, you all have paper copies and uh, those are yours to keep. And so my recommendation is as we're going through the lesson, as, as I'm teaching, for you to write down in your booklet any questions that you may have as they come up. That way you're not trying to remember them until the end. You just write it down. If I answer your question, good. But if not, then we'll get to it at the end. Um, so does everyone, everyone has everything they need correct? If you need a pen, there's some pens back behind Bob. Uh, that way you can write on your booklet. Okay. Bob, can I get you to open us in sure. prayer? Lord, we thank you for this day. Um, thank you for waking us up this morning. Thank you for health. Thank you for the ability to get up and be here. Lord, we thank you for your watching over and keeping us. Lord, be with us now as we explore church membership is what it means for this denomination. And, uh, you know, as part of the larger body of Christ. Lord, we thank you for what you were doing in the Christ name. All right, so uh, if you will turn to page one, um, you will... See the section entitled The Covenant of Communicant Membership, and I want to start off by reading Joshua 24, verses 25 to 27. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak and was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said unto all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us, for it hath heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke unto us. It shall be therefore a witness unto you, lest ye deny your God. Uh, that verse there shows that when covenants are made, there needs to be a physical reminder of it. Um, and, and when, when we enter into the covenant of grace uh, in Christ, the physical reminder of that is our baptism. And then we have the regular continual reminder of the Lord's Supper. Um, but when we enter into communicant membership, there is a covenant that's made then as well. Uh, and the reminder of that is the, the public covenanting ordinance that is made before the people. And so that's what we're really going to be looking at uh, over the next several weeks is what is this public covenanting ordinance? What is this covenant that is to be taken uh, when becoming a member, or what is the covenant that you who are already members have taken? Uh, it's a helpful reminder to all of us. So, a brief overview of who we are. 
Uh, our denomination is the RPCNA. That means Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. Our church is reformed according to the Word of God. Uh, our form of church government is a rule by presbyter or elder. Our denomination uh, is a branch of Christ's church. And our mission is to call men to faith and repentance in North America. So that is an overview of who we are as a denomination. But uh, in regards to who we are uh, and what's, what's, what's important to understand about who we are in regards to this covenant of communicant membership, we are covenanters. We come from the line of covenanters uh, from Scotland in the 17th century. And uh, we believe that public covenanting is an ordinance that is to continue in in the new in the new testament church and so that is why the membership covenant is taken before god publicly in the service and we we see in westminster confession of faith 22 uh, paragraph 3 whosoever taketh an oath ought duly to consider the weightiness of so solemn an act, and therein to avouch nothing but what he is fully persuaded is the truth. Uh, Neither may any man bind himself by oath to anything but what is good and just and what he believeth so to be, and what what he is able and resolved to perform. And that's important. Uh, the covenant that is made, the oaths, the vows uh, that are part of this covenant of communicant membership, you need to be, uh, you need to know what it is that you are vowing to. You need to know what you are covenanting yourself to. Um, and you, you need to be uh, convinced of it before you take the covenant uh, because Taking a vow or an oath upon yourself is a weighty matter. It is a solemn matter. And uh, because of the nature of what covenants are, they are obligatory. They are binding. And so what uh, what you bind yourself to in the covenant must be um, observed. It must be uh, upheld all of your days. And then we see uh, in the next paragraph, paragraph four, an oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words without equivocation or mental reservation. It cannot oblige to sin, but in any same, in anything not sinful being taken, it binds to performance, although to a man's own hurt nor is it to be violated, although made to heretics or infidels. And so there we see that confirmation again. What you take upon yourself in an oath or a vow is binding. Uh, Now, you are not bound to sinful oaths or sinful vows. uh, But insofar as something is not sinful, insofar as it does not cause you to sin, by upholding it, you must uphold it. It must be performed, uh, even to your own hurt. Um, and that means that even if, uh, even if it means that you don't get your way, even if, even if it means that uh, things don't happen how you think they should be, you are obligated to uphold these covenant vows. So what is the covenant of communicant membership? There are seven uh, queries uh, that are given in the covenant of communicant membership. These are vows that are taken. Uh, Number one, do you believe the scripture of the Old and New Testaments to be the word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and life? Number two, do you believe in the one living and true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as revealed in the Scriptures? Number three, do you repent of your sin 
confess your guilt and helplessness as a sinner against God, profess Jesus Christ, Son of God, as your Savior and Lord, and dedicate yourself to His service. Do you promise that you will endeavor to forsake all sin and to conform your life to His teaching and example? Number four, do you promise to submit in the Lord to the teaching and government of this church as being based upon the Scriptures and described in substance in the Constitution of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America? Do you recognize your responsibility to work with others in the church? And and do you promise to support and encourage them in their service to the Lord? In case you should need correction in doctrine or life, do you promise to respect the authority and discipline of the church? Number five, to the end that you may grow in the Christian life, Do you promise that you will diligently read the Bible, engage in private prayer, keep the Lord's Day, regularly attend the worship services, observe the appointed sacraments, and give to the Lord's work as as He shall prosper you? Number six, do you promise or do you purpose to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? In all the relationships of life, faithfully to perform your whole duty as a true servant of Jesus Christ and seek to win others to him. And number seven, do you make this profession of faith and purpose and purpose in the presence of God in humble reliance upon his grace as you desire to give your account with joy in the last great day? So those are the seven uh, queries that are uh, taken up in the Covenant of Communicant Membership. Uh, Those of you who are members, you probably remember those. Um, And hopefully uh, that's a helpful reminder to you of what you yourself have covenanted uh, in regards to the church. But the purpose of this class is to take those queries, those questions that are asked in the covenant of communicant membership, and to explain what is meant by them. Uh, so that if you, if you do take these queries upon yourself, if you do covenant uh, with the Lord in membership in this church, then you are not doing so ignorantly. You are not doing so in a way that you do not know what it is you're actually saying, what it is the vows that you are taking upon yourself. You are doing it in a clear conscience, in a clear manner, uh, in, in the presence of the Lord. So first we are going to uh, consider what we confess about the Bible. And uh, this comes from query number one. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the Word of God, the only infallible rule for faith and life? The Bible is the only infallible rule for faith and life. When we speak of the scriptures, we do not uh, give emphasis to one part, such as the Old Testament or the New Testament, we consider uh, the whole Bible. Our church preaches and teaches the whole counsel of God and seeks to draw Jesus Christ out of all of Scripture. Uh, We teach His free grace in the covenant of grace and we teach the laws of God, which are meant to be a blessing. And we teach all of this because it is all that he has revealed unto us. It's what we are commanded to teach. Uh, We read in John 5.39, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. We're told to search the scriptures. Uh, 
Psalm 19 and verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. John 15, 14. If you love me, and that's Jesus talking, if you love me, keep my commandments. In Acts 20 and verse 27. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. And so that is what we believe. We believe uh, that all of Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable unto men. So uh, if, if, if that is our primary standard, if that is what we look to, the Scriptures alone, then what about confessions and catechisms? Well, we, we believe uh, that confessions and catechisms are what's called subordinate standards. Roman. We believe that the confessions and catechisms are subordinate standards. They are not infallible, meaning that uh, they can have errors. Uh, They have the possibility of not being correct. But we believe that they summarize the Bible's teachings on essentials of the faith. So all believers must summarize what they believe the Bible to teach. If you ask someone who is Jesus, they will tell you an answer. That is, in in essence, a confession of faith. Uh, The church has always been a confessing church. And we see this from the very beginning in the Word. The Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That is a public confession made by the church. We also read of the faithful sayings in the Bible, such as in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Once again, that is a theological statement that Paul is making there about uh, the sinfulness of man and uh, the work of Christ in saving sinners. And the early church uh, adopted the creed of Jesus is Lord. And that was in uh, contradiction to the creed of the Romans at the time, which was Caesar is Lord. Uh, The Romans would require people to uh, bring a sacrifice and offering unto the temple to be made unto Caesar. And when they made that sacrifice, they would have to proclaim Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. Uh, But the Christians refused to do so and instead of saying Kaiser Curios, they would say Yesu uh, Curios, Jesus is Lord. And then that expanded in the uh, following centuries after the close of the canon, and it expanded into the Apostles' Creed, and it reached its zenith, its highest point in uh, the three forms of unity which are the confessional documents of the Continental Reformed Churches and the Westminster Standards, which are the uh, confessional documents of the Presbyterian Churches. So confessions and creeds are, are not infallible, but they are beneficial. They are summaries of what we believe. Confessions and creeds are the product of church synods and councils. They're not products of individuals. 
or they shouldn't be because we believe in uh, one church. Uh, We believe in the church universal. And so we believe that confessions and creeds ought to be made uh, by the church at large. And so we see that uh, the three forms of unity, uh, many of you may know that they were uh, the, the canons of Dort were compiled at the Synod of Dort. And then later on, the uh, Reformed churches adopted the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession. Uh, and so there we see that that uh, confessional standard was adopted by a synod, by a church synod. The Westminster Standards were, were compiled and adopted uh, by the Westminster Assembly of Divines that was operating essentially as a synod, uh, handling a church matter. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, it was also adopted by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. It was taken upon as the confessional standard by the uh, Covenanters, um, and then ultimately uh, to where we are today, it was taken on as our confessional standard uh, as we became the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. So that is a, that's a brief overview of what we believe about confessions and their relationship to the Word of God. Uh, it's important to know that we do not hold the confessions in the same uh, position as Scripture, that they are subordinate, they are below. We weigh the standards according to the Scripture. Um, so what is it that we believe about the Word of God? Well, first we uh, see the need for the Bible to be God-breathed. Uh, that's necessary. And we see that in 2 Peter chapter 1, and verses 19 through 21. The Westminster Confession of Faith affirms this in, in chapter 1, paragraph 1. Although the light of nature... And the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. Yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his his will unto his church. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be the most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. And so we see it was necessary for God to inscripturate his word, to write it down, to put it into a book for his people to have. That was necessary uh, in order to protect the purity of the word. Uh, We also confess that the Bible is infallible inerrant, and inspired, and that it is the testimony of God. And we see that in Hebrews 6.18. Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 1, paragraph 5 says, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverent esteem to the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of, of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine and majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, 
and many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So we, we do uh, accept uh, that what the church teaches concerning Scripture is true, uh, that we are to have a reverent and high esteem for it. And we can see all of these external qualities of the Scriptures which testify to their being the Word of God. But uh, how do we know that the Scripture is God's Word? We know it because the Spirit testifies to our hearts that it is the Word of God. Uh, We confess the authority of the Bible being that it is God's Word. That is where the authority of Scripture comes from. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 4. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. The authority of Scripture comes from the person who authored it. And so the authority of Scripture is that authority of God himself. Because he is the author of it. Uh, Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 6. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for a saving understanding of such things as are revealed in in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human action in societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. Hopefully you all uh, recognize that section of the Confession of Faith because uh, much of what we uh, saw over the last two weeks in our sermons uh, has been... Uh, taken partially from this uh, portion of the confession. And so we see that, that it has application for worship as we're seeing in our sermons, but the, the broader scope of what this portion is saying is that everything you need for faith and life is found in the Word of God. And that puts it as not only the supreme authority in what we do in, in worship, but the supreme authority in what we do in life. Everything that we do must be weighed according to Scripture. And so, uh, one of the arguments of uh, the Roman Catholic Church, of the Greek Orthodox Church, uh, or the Eastern Orthodox Church, is that uh, the authority comes from the church and that it is the church who, who uh, has given the word and it is the church who has the, the prime authority. But we do not believe that. We confess that the authority of the church is in, is in ministering the word. 
that that is the authority that the church has, is a ministering authority. The authority of the church is ministerial, while the authority of the Bible is magisterial. Now, you may not be uh, familiar with those terms, but ministerial authority uh, is thus saith the Lord, uh, the Scripture, and not thus saith the pastor or the elders. Uh, ministerial authority is teaching and preaching and commanding only what Scripture dictates. Uh, magisterial authority, what, what the Bible has, the authority that the Bible has as magisterial authority, is that it has the authority to legislate. It governs. And so the laws that we are to obey are found in the Word. Uh, how we are to pattern our lives is found in the Word. That's the difference between ministerial authority and magisterial authority. The church does not have the authority to create new laws, create new rules, create new obligations for you to follow. Uh, that is where we uh, get into the danger of the Pharisees teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. And so this distinguishes the Reformed Church from the Roman Catholic Church. Isaiah 8 and verse 20 says to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So it is, uh, Isaiah is saying that if anyone speaks in a way that is not according to the law and to the testimony, that is the scriptures, then there is no light in them. They're not true. They're false. Acts 17 and, and verse 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. We see that those people, uh, the Bereans, searched the scriptures. They tested what Paul was saying according to the scriptures. And so uh, that, is, that is the standard. That is the ultimate authority. Paul in and of himself did not have authority. He only had the authority of thus set the Lord. Pointing back to scripture. And so we as uh, Christians need to be like the Bereans and weigh everything according to Scripture. Anything that I preach unto you or that Bob or I teach to you must be interpreted, must be understood according to the Scriptures. And if, if something we are teaching, something that I am preaching is not according to the Scriptures, you need to come to us and make that known. Show it. Plead your case. Uh, we must be wholly conformed unto the Word of God. So, uh, some sound principles for interpreting the Scripture. There is one meaning or sense to a scripture, but there are multiple applications. The Holy Spirit inspired the scripture with one particular meaning, one particular sense. But flowing from that particular meaning, that particular sense, we can apply it in, in numerous, countless different ways. Think of how many times you've heard a, a Bible verse and it's applied in a particular way that you've never heard before. Um, at our session meeting this past week, our devotion was talking about uh, Simon, the serene who 
who came and uh, bore the cross of Christ as he was making his way up to Calvary. And uh, both Bob and I were, were considering that scripture and using Charles Spurgeon's morning and, uh, morning and evening uh, devotions uh, as the guide for our devotion. And, and he brought out a lot of aspects that, that I'd never thought of. And, and Bob said the same thing. You know, we had never thought about that passage of Simon bearing the cross of Christ in regards to us as Christians taking up our cross daily and following him. And yet, that is an application of that text. And so we, we see, you know, scriptures can be applied in so many different ways. And so long as they do not distort the sense of the text, then all of those applications are valid. So there is one meaning to scripture, but multiple applications. Uh, another sound principle is that the infallible rule uh, for interpreting Scripture is Scripture itself. Scripture interprets Scripture. Um, and this is important, especially when we come to difficult passages. We, we interpret the more difficult to understand passages in light of the more easy to understand passages. Uh, the, the harder reading must be understood in light of the easier reading. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so, for example, you read in uh, James that faith without works is dead. Um, and so is James teaching salvation by faith plus works. Well, no. We have to interpret what James is saying in light of the rest of Scripture. And Scripture is very clear in Ephesians 2 that we are saved by grace alone through faith and not uh, of ourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so you see, you interpret the more difficult passage by the clearer passage. That is, uh, that is the infallible rule of interpretation, in interpreting Scripture by Scripture. Um, and then also, Reformed hermeneutics, or how, how we understand how we interpret the Bible, Reformed hermeneutics includes good and necessary consequence. Uh, good and necessary consequence. And that's seen in, in Westminster Confession of Faith uh, 1.6. Uh, and we, we give it an, get an example of it in Mark 12 and 24 uh, through 27. Here you go. You can have one of these. See you. We are on page five. Uh, so we get an example of good and necessary consequence from uh, Mark 12 and verses 24 through 27. And I'm going to read that real quick. It's not written in your uh, booklet, but I'm going to read it. Mark 12, 24 through 27. And Jesus answering said unto them, do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God? For when they, ri when they shall rise from the dead, neither, they neither marry nor are given to marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. And as touching the dead that they may rise, ye, have ye not read from, in the book of Moses how in the bush... God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Yet therefore, uh, ye therefore do greatly err. And you may be thinking, how is that an example of good and necessary consequence? 
but Jesus is using uh, the fact that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, and that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, to then draw the conclusion of the resurrection from the dead, that God is not the God of the dead. And so he uses that to uh, draw that conclusion of the resurrection from the dead. That is a good and necessary consequence. It is good because it is following what the scriptures are teaching, but it is necessary because it is, it is a necessary uh, consequence, a necessary following from that teaching. It necessarily flows from it. Uh, and so this is important. And if you grew up in Baptist churches, this may be um, somewhat of a foreign concept to you, uh, the, do- uh, the understanding of good and necessary consequence. A lot of Baptists teach uh, a form of biblicism that if there's not a chapter and verse uh, which you can point to to show me what you're teaching, then I'm not going to believe it. But if we don't have good and necessary consequence, then we don't have the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is flowing from good and necessary consequence. There is no single chapter verse reference that you can give me that teaches everything about the doctrine of the Trinity. Or that even has the word Trinity in it. Now I can give you verses that uh, we use to draw out the doctrine of the Trinity. Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. uh, Go ye therefore into all nations uh, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So there we see the triune aspect of God. Uh, I can point to several different verses that speak of each of the persons of the Godhead individually. First uh, John 5, 7, it, we see that uh, there are three which bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. So these passages, they very clearly teach the doctrine of the Trinity, but the full orb doctrine of the Trinity comes out of good and necessary consequence. Uh, we do not have the word Trinity in our Bible, and, and yet it is formulated through good and necessary consequence. Without good and necessary consequence, then interpretation degenerates into simple proof texts, and that is that biblicism that I'll mention. Give me a chapter and verse. That's not a good way to do interpretation of Scripture. That's not a good way to handle the Word of God. Uh, Yes, it's good if there are explicit references to certain doctrines. And you can pull out chapter and verse. But if you do not have this category of good and necessary consequence, then your understanding of the doctrines of the faith will be... uh, famished will be diminished so that is our uh, understanding of how we interpret scripture next we see that the word of god in flesh is jesus and we see that in first in john chapter one and so the entirety of the word testifies to him and we get this understanding from luke 24 and verses 44 and 45 And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Jesus taught these two disciples on the road to Emmaus that all scripture testifies to him. 
There is not one part of Scripture that does not speak to Christ in some way. Uh, it may be in type. It may be in shadow. It may be in uh, an illusion. Uh, something that, that points back to Him. Um, but everything in Scripture testifies of Jesus. All of the Scripture is about Him. And then we also uh, see the law of God in the Scriptures. And this is important for the, what we confess, that the Scriptures are the infallible rule of faith and life. In Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, is all about the law of God. If you want to study uh, that section more in depth, but we, we confess that the law of God expresses the rule of God over us all. God is our king. And as our king, he has the right to create laws over us. And we as his subjects are obligated to obey his law. Uh, Exodus 20 and verse 2 is a good reference for that. Uh, we also see that uh, the law of God is to be followed out of love for God and for neighbor. Uh, Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Uh, and we, we also speak a lot about the, the twofold uh, division of the law in, in the Ten Commandments that the, the first table of the law, the first four commandments, and then we have the second table of the law, which is the next six commandments. And there in that division of the two tables of the law, we see that uh, the first four speak of our duties towards God, which reflect our love for Him. And the next six speak of our duties towards men, which reflect our love towards men. Uh, and so we are called to obey the law out of love for God and for our neighbor. And then there are also three uses of the law. Uh, and these were, uh, these were highlighted and expounded upon during the time of the Reformation. Uh, the three uses of the law. The first use is that it shows sinners need uh, for Christ the Savior and to be saved by faith. We see that in Galatians 3.24. That is what the law does. It shows you your sinfulness and your need for a Savior. Um, the second use of the law is that it shows civil magistrates how to restrain and to promote uh, how to restrain evil and to promote good. Uh, and that is found in Romans 13.4. It is to be the guidelines, the principles by which the moral conduct of society operates. And then the third use of the law is that it shows the saints how to please God out of love. We do these works to please God because we love Him. And that's seen in John fourteen fifteen. So the law of God is not for us to earn our salvation, but it is an expression of gratitude from the salvation that we already have received. So uh, to, to close out this section, we, we see that the word of God is the only infallible rule of conduct for individuals for families, for churches, and for the state. It is for the good and the well-being of all, and it results in great blessedness. Its aim is to turn men away from themselves and to turn them unto Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Lord over all, and it must be constantly before us as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6.
So this is what we confess of the Word of God, of the Scriptures. Um, I, I would hope that not much that was said during this time would be controversial. Uh, there may be some new aspects that were, that were brought up, but I hope that uh, all of you can see clearly uh, these principles concerning Scripture. So are there any questions or comments about what we confess about the Bible or uh, even about this first uh, query for co- the covenant of communicant membership? Are there any questions? Are there more clear passages than others? You spoke about the Bible being very clear and what it's Yeah, there there are more there are passages that are uh, more clear than in others. Um, if you if you read, uh, I think it's First Peter. Peter is talking, or maybe Second Peter, uh, but Peter is talking about the writings of the Apostle Paul, and he says that they are hard to understand. So even Scripture admits that there are some things in Scripture that are harder to understand. Um, and and that's, that's why we allow clearer passages in Scripture to interpret the harder to understand passages. Um, and if you take that in a bigger scale, uh, there are doctrines that we confess that are more difficult to comprehend, to understand than other doctrines. Um, The doctrine of Scripture is a lot easier for us to understand than the doctrine of the last things, eschatology, the doctrine of the end times. Um, And so uh, it's it's perfectly fine to, to recognize that some things are more difficult than others. But we, we let the, the more clear things, the easier to understand things, guide us in how we are to understand the more difficult things. Yeah, that makes sense. Any other questions? You did also bring up um, in this first chapter. <clears throat> A lot of people might dispute this as inauthentic. Uh, how would we uh, handle that uh, issue by looking at scripture, by looking at mm. other, uh, materials, or how would we understand that controversy? Yeah, um, if if someone were to dispute you bringing up First John five seven, then I would I would say what you should say to them is. Okay, well, let's let's put that one aside for now and look at these other ones. So go to Matthew twenty-eight. Go to uh, the benediction. Can't remember where it is. Where it says, uh, "The love of God the Father." What is it, man? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Uh, that that uh, benediction that Paul gives, uh, where you see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three named individually as having a role in providing the blessing on his people. Go to those passages and you know, go to the ones that talk about the Spirit operating as a person because he is a person go to the ones that speak of the divinity of Christ being the son of God Uh, John 17 where Christ is praying to the father um, and he says I pray that they would be one even as I and the father are one Uh, so go to those passages Um, but when it comes to you know what are we to understand regarding uh, what is the Word of God? Uh, 
we see that uh, Scripture is preserved uh, providentially by God and, and kept pure in all ages. Um, we see in Second uh, Kings chapter 22 uh, that uh, the, war, the law of God was recovered in the temple under the reign of King Josiah by the uh, high priest uh, Hilkiah. And uh, at that time, that was the only copy of the law of God in existence. But God kept his word pure and preserved it through those ages of apostasy um, and kept it pure uh, and, and preserved it through the means of the church. Um, and we, we uh, believe that he continues to preserve and, and keep pure his word through those means as well. It is the church who is the pillar and buttress of the truth. It is uh, to the church that is given the mysteries of God. Um, and so we, we believe that the, the word is preserved through those means even today. Um, now there are different understandings of how God has preserved his word and we could get into that. I personally believe in a received text position that uh, the, the scriptures that the church has always received throughout the ages should be received in this age as well. And that includes 1 John 5, 7. Uh, but there are others who believe in, in what's called a critical text position uh, where they take the different manuscript evidence and weigh them against each other and determine what they believe to be the, the uh, most accurate um, rendering of the Greek text. And so it depends on what your textual tradition is, where you're going to land on something like 1 John 5, 7 being the Word of God. Um, and there's, there's room for disagreement there. Um, now, understand, you may not believe that 1 John 5, 7 is the Word of God. You may not believe that uh, the long ending of Mark, in Mark chapter 16, verses uh, 9 through 20, you may not believe that those are the Word of God. You may not believe that the pericope adultery, the woman caught in adultery, is the word of God. You may not believe that at the pool of Bethesda there was truly an angel that came down and stirred the waters. You may not believe that that, that is the word of God. And, and, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make that an issue with anybody concerning what, what manuscript they, tradition they hold to or what translation you personally use. But understand that even if you do not hold those things to be part of the Word of God and later scribal errors or uh, additions or whatever, just know that from this pulpit, they will be preached as the Word of God. And I will draw doctrine from those passages. I will draw uh, encouragements for godly living from those passages because... I believe they are the word of God and ought to be treated as such. Any other questions, final questions? All right. Well, next week we will uh, continue and we will look at what we confess about God. And if you want to uh, prepare yourself, you can look over that section Maybe write down some questions throughout the week and it'll help you uh, come in ready for that. Matt, can you close us in prayer? Father, we just thank you for the opportunity we had to uh, review some of these things. A lot of, for a lot of us, this is old stuff, but Father, you've you, 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 in your word that, um, that we need to come.
Todd Thompson reminded me, Father, we just thank you for that. Um, just pray, Father, for your blessing um, from this teaching and then the teaching of your word that is to be um, held high and in reverence and believe and obey, Father. We pray that uh, um, that you would move in this church to advance the, the scriptures and that to hold your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.